I'm a giant when I stand Ballin' like the Jets, start in Jersey like the Nets To New York like the Mets, yeah I win like the Yanks Like the past, spell a check, GNT Sports Talk How to show on the net, yeah On myself, yeah I bet, yeah I put blood to the switch, yeah From the East to the West, GNT Sports Talk How to show on the net, yeah What is up, everyone? We have a special edition of Grunt Talk Sports, of course, joined by my brother Bobby Thompson. But today, we have the first blind broadcaster for MLB in the history of the game, Don Wardlow. So, Mr. Wardlow, thank you so much for doing this. How's everything going? Oh, going real good, uh, Julian. Good to be on with you and looking forward to doing this today. Thanks again. So I'm going to get right to it. Um, my first question is, what got you started on this path towards baseball and what were some of the challenges in pursuing this field without being able to see? Yeah, well, I've been blind all my life. And when I was eight years old, I heard my first baseball games. And that was even by accident, you might say, because the radio station that I listened to at that time was a country station from Hackensack, New Jersey, and they broadcast the New York Mets, uh, WJRZ at that time. Um, The Mets, you know, have moved around over the years, but they had a commercial then where they would have the theme song. It was called Meet the Mets. Mm -hmm. And that they would play that song and they would talk about the next upcoming game. And the song had had these banjos in it and as a part of the song and i love country music and when i was little that was a real rarity in new jersey a kid liking country music and country music you know part of that is banjos and guitars and things like that and i'm like well if this station has the game i should listen to that and see see how it is see what i make of it and well that was the first, that was in 1971. That was when I heard my first game. It was in spring training that year. And the rest is history. Now, I was a baseball fan from that day, and it's gotten harder to be a baseball fan down the decades, but I, I became one, and I still am one. Wow, that's a fascinating story of how you got into it. And just some background, Bobby and I are both from NJ, so this is a Jersey Strong podcast. Yes, we are. We yeah. are from the, born and raised in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And the Mets, for, for, I found out since then that for five years there, from 67 until 71, they didn't have a New York station. They were on JRZ those five years, and they moved over, and they were on New York stations after that. And then for the longest time, they were on the fan. I listen to them sometimes. I really have been a Yankees fan since 1974. There we uh, go. That was my grandpa's team. And, and he, he used to kid me and he would say, the Mets are nothing but a bunch of beginners. And what <laughs> I didn't know was that he was speaking the God's truth because <laughs> the Mets had only started in 1962. Right. I, I found that out. When I went to my first Mets game at Shea in 1972, they were doing uh, kind of a birthday celebration, you might say, for the 10th anniversary of the team. 
So that's when I knew Grandpa wasn't really kidding. He was saying the Yankees had been a team forever and the Mets were only 10 years old. And that the year and a half later, after Grandpa died, that's when I figured to start rooting for the Yankees as a tribute to him. Well, I think you made the right decision there because we know how those teams have gone. But my next question is going to be, so how do you do it? Like, how do you how do you broadcast the game without seeing it? Well, that's, you know, that wasn't even the plan initially. That, again, came about by accident. What I wanted to do initially was to be a disc jockey, preferably on a country station if I could get onto one. So I, I was thinking about that and, you know, preparing for that. My college education was leaning in that direction. But shortly before I went away to college, I started hearing college radio stations. You know, up till then, the only baseball games I had heard were the Mets, the Yankees, the Phillies. And these are tremendous announcers every announcer the Mets had went to Cooperstown, you know, Murphy and Ralph Kiner and Lindsey Nelson, they all went to Cooperstown. Uh, the Yankees, Rizzuto went to Cooperstown. Bill White should be there as a broadcaster, even though he's, he's not, but he ought to be. He was terrific. And you listen to those great broadcasters, you never think you could do it. But then when you hear young guys, college guys who were only a couple of years older than I was. These guys were making mistakes like a regular person would make. And I'm thinking if, if they can broadcast baseball, maybe when I get to college, I can do that. I can probably be as good as they are if I can find somebody to do my play-by-play. That's going to be the biggest thing. And it was a challenge. I went to Glassboro State College and that's very far down in South Jersey. That's only about 20 miles from Philly. And I must have asked every announcer who uh, was on the list wanting to do sports on WGLS, the Glassboro radio station. Uh, and I asked everyone getting all the way to the bottom of the list. And up to the last one, every one of them said no. And it took me a while to find that last guy. He was a guy named Jim Lucas. And I finally located him. And I said to him, Jim Lucas, are you up for a challenge? Would you broadcast baseball with a blind guy? Same question that I'd asked everybody else. And where everyone else, all 16 of them had said no. Jim, the 17th and last on the list, he said yes. And that was in November of 83. We knew we wouldn't do baseball until, you know, springtime, you know, April of 84. But we figured, well, we got to get some experience somehow. Let's do a little basketball. And so we did some of that. But come springtime, you know, when Temple played Glassboro, the first home game of the spring season, we were there. And we broadcast a handful of college baseball games. And once Jim had opened the doors and once the radio station people knew that I could actually do this, uh, other guys were 
looking for opportunities to work with me, which was very helpful because Jim went and got a real job. So after 84, Jim wasn't around. I had to work with other guys and I'm, I'm glad I found them. And I got a good bit of experience, you know, those last two years of college, 85 and 86. So first off, I have to say that the fact that you're, you're blind and you were able to broadcast games, that's not only incredible, but extremely inspirational because you're doing something that is nearly impossible to do. So before I get to my questions, I want to say that what you did and what you do is truly inspirational. So I, I, I think this is, this is an incredible story. I really do. But so if you could have anybody be your play-by-play, I know you had, um, you got your play-by-play guy. If you had your pick of anybody who was established, who would it be? Uh, my idol was Bob Murphy. There, there, you know, I, I listened to as many different broadcasters, both as a kid and to this very day, I listen to as wide of a range as I can. You know, a lot of them are great. Vin Scully was fantastic, mm-hmm, but I had, I had to grow into Vin Scully. I call him the thinking man's broadcaster. <laughs> you know, I had to really become an adult to, to understand him for one thing. But Bob Murphy was the guy to listen to if you were just learning the game. And he could, he could, he could paint a word picture. So could Lindsay Nelson. Either of those would be great to work with. Bob, Bob Murphy was something special, though. Now, one man who I met and who I interviewed several times who would have been great to work with would be Harry Callis, the Philadelphia broadcaster who ended up in Cooperstown. But Harry had a a team with with Whitey Richie Ashburn, the Philadelphia former center fielder. Mm -hmm. And and when they worked together, Harry was... Abbott and Richie Ashburn was Costello. So he, he would get the funny lines, you know, and that's kind of in, in, a, in a smaller way what Jim and I did. He was the play-by-play man and of necessity, the straight man. And when there was a joke to be gotten, I would try to get it. I'd try to play for a funny line, you know, <laughs> I, but I was no way as funny as Richie Ashburn was. One classic that he and Harry Callis pulled off, they were out in San Diego and Tony Gwynn was playing for the Padres then. Harry was talking about Tony's most recent hot streak. He'd gotten base hits in 12 games out of the last 10 that the Padres had played in. And Harry says, when Tony's as hot as he is now, I understand he takes his bat with him to bed. Uh, Richie, did you ever do that? And Richie said, Harry, I took many old bats to bed. <laughs> that's a good one. So I, I was like never that, that funny. funny. <laughs> that's, that's 
Oh, that's a good joke. I like that one. That's really, really clever. <laughs> Very clever. Um, you know what? Now, today, is there any broadcasters that you really like to listen to? Like anyone in particular? I know you like the Yankees, so I'm assuming, of course, the great John Sterling, of course, Michael Kay. I'm even going to throw, I think, Ken Singleton in, in there. I think he's very good. Was there anybody who is a mm. broadcaster who you just really love to listen to? Singleton is marvelous. I heard Michael Kay as a college boy when he was studying at Fordham. He was with Charlie Slows, who is now the broadcaster for the Nationals. And they're both excellent. Michael really had to work like a dog because when he was at Fordham, he had a tremendous Brooklyn accent. And if you hear him now, you know, he's really beaten most of that. You can still tell he's a New Yorker, but he's not as obviously, you know, a Brooklynite as he was, you know, 40 years ago when he was in college. Right. John Miller out in San Francisco, you know, he's, you know, he's starting to show the miles now. Howie Rose, the Mets broadcaster, is another good one. And John Sterling, I liked a lot better. 30 years ago and okay. when, he, when he was working with Michael. Now, the last, goodness, at least 10 years, he's done more of these silly gimmicky things. <laughs> you know, these things he says when the Yankees hit a home run. <laughs> if you're going to do something like that, it has to be uh, organic, I think is the word. It has to just happen. You can't spend a lot of time you know, trying to think, oh, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. Um, my own broadcast partner, Jim Lucas, came up with a, our home run call quite by accident. You know, we, we didn't go into double A ball with a home run call in mind. You know, our first two years we were in A ball, we were down in Florida. And because we were, and there's a lot of Spanish-speaking people down there, Yep. Um, our home run call, Jim's was adios. You know, and that worked for, as I say, those first two years down in Florida. But when we moved up to Connecticut, you know, Jim didn't start the double A season with a home run call that he was, you know, practicing and that he had ready. It just, it just hit him the second game of the season. And it wasn't even one of ours. He booted our first home run of the season. But uh, somebody from the other team came up to the plate and he launched one. And Jim says, you know, hit, hit deep to center field. We will watch it. Leave the park. And in between innings, he's like, that sounded pretty good. I, what do you think? I, I think I'm going to work with that. And for the next 10 years, almost every home run, if it was clear enough, if it wasn't in doubt, he would, you know, we will watch it, leave the park. But that, as I say, that happened without him spending a lot of time, you know, preparing for it. That's a great point, you know. Um, if we're being honest, I mean, Sterling could definitely be a little cheesy with his own run calls sometimes. Like, when the Yankees trade for a player, like, oh, what's Gallo's call going to be? Oh, what's Rizzo's call going to be? I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, he's been in it a while. You know, maybe his tricks are running out of touch. We still respect him and love the job he's done and have still good to listen to him. But most of the time we watch the game on TV, to be honest, and, like, we're doing our highlight clips and stuff. But that's just my perspective on it. 
Right. And, you know, the best announcers are the ones who do not take for granted that you're watching TV. You know, the ones who remember that there's still people listening in their cars on radio, listening on radio because some of us are blind. You know, some some of baseball's, you know, most solid, loyal fans, you know, have been blind people down through the years listening on their radios. Vince Scully knew that. John Miller knows that. You know, the problem with the, a lot of the younger broadcasters, especially the ones who, you know, just have only grown up with ESPN, they just assume that everybody is watching the TV and not even paying attention to the play-by-play call. They forget that there is a radio audience. Right. No, that's a good point. Like, we'll still do the radio when we're driving around and stuff. Um, I still like to listen to it. I think John Miller was great, is great at both things, honestly. He's, he, I loved him on something like baseball. Um, he's been good. I'll repeat it, Joe Morgan. He was really good, too. And you kind of touched on this one, but what's the biggest difference to you between, like, a TV broadcast and a radio broadcast? Like, what elements make the feeds different? Well, the obvious thing is that, you know, 99% of the population can see what's going on. So there's really not all that much need to describe things the way it's done on radio. But then you have people forgetting that, that when they are actually on radio, that they have to do a radio broadcast. That's, that's important to, to remember. Right. That's a good point. So um, one other thing I have is that, um, so how long was your career and what was the most memorable game you called? Oh, we were 12 years in the game. We were in the minors all that time. We got one cup of coffee at the major league level. Hmm. And that was in June of 1994. The Florida Marlins were brand new then. This was their second year. And they would, they would try different things, you know, where a team like Boston or, you know, a more established team wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't try anything different, wouldn't try something special. They brought Jim and myself down to Miami and they gave us three half innings to cover. We did the top of the third, the bottom of the fifth, and I believe the top of the seventh, we did, as I say, three half innings of a game when the Marlins faced the Chicago Cubs. And that was our most memorable game, of course, because it was our cup of coffee in the bigs. It was, uh, I got a chance to meet Tony Perez of the Big Red Machine. I remembered him from when I was a kid. Uh, he was working for the Marlins in some capacity at that time. Uh, of course, I met their broadcasters, Joe Angel and Dave O'Brien. Now, on the regular minor league level, twice our teams made the playoffs, 1997 and 1998. We were with the St. Paul Saints by then. And first of all, we'd never made the playoffs in our first six years. So making them in 97, just getting to the playoffs was special, even though our team was beaten in the first round. Um, 98, though, the second time we got into the playoffs, we were still with St. Paul in the Northern League. 
and you had the Northern League Eastern Division Championship Series, and that was us, the St. Paul Saints, against the Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks, a team from Thunder Bay, Ontario. And the first two games were played up there. The last three were played in St. Paul. The first four games were two apiece. So it was a game five was a winner take all. Winner goes to the league championship series to play Fargo. And it was one to one, bottom of the ninth. We had a guy on our team whose name you may remember, former Yankee catcher. Matt Noakes. Matt hadn't played between 1995 and 1998. He was trying to make a comeback, and he spent a good chunk of that season with us. And bottom of the ninth, one-to-one, Matt Noakes hit one. Over the fence, ended the game. Classic call for Jim. We will watch it leave the park. And that was our best game at any level. You know, very quick game, very cleanly played game, and extremely memorable. Even though we lost in three straight in the league championship against Fargo. And that was interesting all by itself because I wouldn't have been too bothered if we didn't go to Fargo because my wife was not very well at the time and I would have been okay if I was staying home tending her. But we we went to Fargo, but the highlight of the season was that game that we won against Thunder Bay to clinch the Eastern Division Championship. That's an incredible story about your most memorable game, absolutely, and, and rightfully so. Um, my question to you right now is, is there anybody from who is well, actually, you know what, who is your favorite baseball player to uh, listen to play? Like anytime you heard about this guy, you had to, you, you wanted to hear how this guy was doing. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the first one wasn't even on our team. First one was Willie Mays. Oh, of course. And, and as a Mets fan, obviously the Mets didn't play the Giants very often, but when they did, I wanted to hear what might happen when Willie would come to the plate. And then he was traded to the Mets in May of 72. And so I got to hear some, some of his games in his last two years in 72 and 73. Then with the Yankees, Reggie Jackson. Oh, of course. How do you how do you not want to hear, you know what, what Reggie Jackson would do? I mean, I've heard in the years since that, you know, he wasn't the best guy. You know, he he certainly caused enough trouble, especially the first year, in 1977. You know, getting on the wrong side of Thurman Munson, which wasn't somebody you wanted to get on his wrong side. So, and of course, so, but uh, those, those two, you know, growing up and later on, Mike Schmidt with the Phillies, mm-hmm. I, I got to go to the game where Mike Schmidt's number was retired. Oh, and I'll tell you, that was in May of 89 and it was a freezing night 
it had been pouring rain all day long. And if it's cold and wet anyplace else, it's freezing and miserable at a baseball stadium, whether it's Shea or whether it's Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, as they say, desperately cold. And, but I just, I, I've been planning on this. I've been planning on going to the game to, to be there when Schmidt's number was retired. And it actually quit raining about five minutes after I got off the train, you know, get going over to the vet. Cause I was wondering what I would do if it was still pouring with rain as it had been all day long. But I knew that stadium had the Zamboni so they'd be able to get the game played. You know, it wouldn't be like on a grass field where, you know, especially the older stadiums where they didn't drain very well. So mm-hmm. I took the chance and made the trip. And, you know, the highlight was the retirement ceremony. There was a spring band, then there was a high school marching band, and then there was the ceremony. And the game was a bummer because the Phillies got beat 12 to 3 that night. Oh, boy. A bummer way to end that, that great trip. Yeah. Uh, but, my, you know, this, is, this question goes out to anybody who is blind and wants to be in the position that you were in. What would the advice, what would the advice be you would give them if they want to go the route that you did? Because you know, I know you'll tell them it's not going to be easy, but what would you tell them? Well, you, you got the first sentence right there. It's not going to be easy, but it has to start you know, at the college level, it, it, if you have to find a college person to do the play-by-play and mm-hmm. then a blind person can learn how to do the color commentary. You, you have to become very handy with the stats and you have to learn what stats to use, what stats are just going to bore people out of their minds and or what, what stats they really should hear to have an idea who's going well you know, with the ball team. And with the internet, that's something that even college players, you can get stats, which was not possible when I was broadcasting on the college level. You know, the, the internet still hadn't come about. And in fact, I didn't get my first computer until my ninth year as a broadcaster. Wow. So I used the internet in the last four years from 1999 until 2002 to try and help me with the research that I was doing night by night for, for my broadcasts. So, but if you can find someone to work with, you know, the, the next step is even more difficult than it was in our time because when we started out, there were 176 baseball teams on the minor league level. And now, as you may know, the Major League Baseball has removed about 40 of those minor league teams. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean less opportunities for players. That means less opportunities for guys to learn to be club executives, you know, ground crew personnel, and broadcasters because you can't broadcast if the team's not playing, you know, in the town anymore. A lot of towns that had baseball for a great many years don't have baseball now. And 
that that is going to cut a lot of opportunities out that people have had until just a couple of years ago. We hope you're enjoying the show so far. Follow us on Instagram at Grunt Talks Team, Twitter Grunt Talks MLB, and Grunt Talks NFL. Again, Instagram Grunt Talks Team, Twitter Grunt Talks MLB, and Grunt Talks NFL. Now back to the show. With what happened with minor league baseball, it took away a lot of opportunities for not only players, but for a lot of people trying to make it into the industry. And it's just unfortunate that that happened. Right now, another thing you've got to know if you're going to do this You've got to be prepared for the fact that you'll probably be broadcasting on the internet. The minor leagues, I've been saying since 2000, I I actually thought that by the year 2020, all minor league baseball would be strictly on the internet. I thought that when we first went on the internet in 2000, I thought it would only take another 20 years. Now there's still some minor league ball on radio but it's going the way i predicted it would go it's just going a little bit slower so i'm but so be prepared to be on the internet as opposed to being on radio because there are more radio stations are owned by big big companies and they they don't allow a lot of room to negotiate with a minor league baseball team so a lot of the teams, you know, some, some still have radio, but a lot don't. But the internet does give a nice um, opportunity instead of not having any broadcast whatsoever. You know, that used to be the only other option. If you weren't on radio, you won't, didn't exist. You know, there was, there was no internet those first eight years when I was in the game. So, in fact, we got our double-A job by discovering the only team in double-A which did not broadcast in the year 1992. And my broadcast partner, Jim Lucas, went to the general manager in New Britain, Connecticut, and said, you know, you were not on radio last year. We can get you back on just give us an opportunity, you know, we will sell the product, we'll sell the commercials, you know, we'll pay the radio station out of the money that we can raise, you know, selling the commercial product. And that's the only way we got into AA and the only way we stayed in AA, which we were in for four years. That's something else. Yeah, the internet plays a big part. It really does nowadays. It's It wasn't, as you alluded to, it wasn't available and around back then, but now what it does for us today is something special, especially for broadcasting purposes. And what we found when we first went on the internet with the Charleston River Dogs in the year 2000, our audience was small at that time but they were extremely loyal. A lot of the ball players' families were listening all over the country. And sometimes, you know, we would hear that somebody, some player's family got to hear part of one of our games in another country, one of the Latin countries possibly. So they were a very loyal audience, if not a very large one. 
Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff you told us and a lot of good advice for people who want to follow in your footsteps. And something I picked from that was um, when you were talking about the statistics, I know a lot of stuff has changed with that. And today, you look at all the analytics and everything. So my question to you is, I try to find the best blend between the old school and the new school. So in today's game, what statistics do you think people should really be focusing on? You know, I still stick with the the ones, you know, there used to be a saying, stay with the one that brought me to the dance. And <laughs> I, I got to the dance with the batting average, the doubles, triples, home runs, and RBIs. And those were the ones Phil Rizzuto would do on Yankee broadcasts. And I'd hear those from him when I was a little kid, you know, and that, that's that's what I did. I don't know where I would find room to put on a sheet of braille paper, you know, all the stats that are out there nowadays. But the, the slugging and the uh, on-base plus slugging, that one I really don't even understand. You know, I understand the on-base percentage. That, that makes sense to me. And, of course, um, how many times you walk against, how many times you strike out. You know, those, you know, you, you, just, you just have to think what you understand best, what you sound like you know what you're talking about. And then you have to get it in an orderly uh, line or, or double line in, in Braille. Now, it might take, you know, a couple of pages to, to do a team's daily stats where it always took, you know, just one for the batters and one for the pitchers. Now it might take two for each yeah. if I were broadcasting nowadays. And one thing that I really would have a major problem with is all the commercials in the midst of the game itself. Mm. You know, we, we had a few of those. Our starting lineups were sponsored. Our pitching changes were sponsored. You know, but, you know, especially at the big league level, every single thing is sponsored. The cleanup hitter in the order is sponsored. The umpire's alignment is sponsored the the, the fielder's alignment is sponsored it's just, <laughs> it's more than a little ridiculous and i don't yeah. know i don't know how i would cope with it if i had all those i'd have to have them all in braille and, and have them in front of me and be ready to go with them and it's even happening at the minor league level um, yep. in double a i heard this on a game only a week and a half ago Every single half inning, when they would get on the air after their after their commercial, they would have to do what's called a live read, and that's where you actually read the commercial. And we had to do three recorded commercials in between each half inning. So when we got back in, we were lucky if the game hadn't already started before we got back on the air, we might have missed a couple of pitches. If we had to do a live read, we would probably miss the first whole batter of every half minute. 
Wow. No, that's a very good point. And the commercials are definitely overwhelming. And even on the field, when you see them, like all the billboards are on the field, the minor leagues too. And you get all the advertisements, seems like every half inning. Um, yeah, it takes away a lot from the purity of the game, I'd say. Wouldn't mind to cut back on a few commercials. What I can really do without at the big league level is all the incredibly loud music. And they sometimes do it even in between pitches. And they definitely do it in between batters. It's like every yeah. batter, every batter has this ridiculous walk-up music. I mean, it was one thing in the 70s and 80s when Shea and Yankee Stadium had organists. You know, the Braves still have an organist and a very good one, but they're pretty much, you know, almost the only team doing it. You know, there there used to be you know, more, more organs. And, and that was a lot better than the stuff on the PA system. And it's so loud that if you're at the game and you're trying to hear it with a headset, like I always did, you know, it's very difficult to manage. Uh, that's more of a problem for me than the, than even the commercials. Yeah, I don't like that either. Like I try to record videos and stuff. I got to go over the music, make sure it's loud enough. That's definitely irritating, but Check out our website, Grunt Talks MLB, for all our baseball and football content. YouTube channel, Grunt Talk Sports. Website, Grunt Talks MLB. YouTube channel, Grunt Talk Sports. Now back to the show. So when did you decide to call it quits with the broadcasting, and how did you transition out of that? Like, when did you know it was time to pursue something else? Well, I, I left the game at the end of the 2002 baseball season. I had been married in the off season of 1997 and my wife had health issues all along. I knew that when I married her that she had health issues, but what I didn't know is that how much more trouble they were going to cause. And it got to the point where if I would try to call her and I would be out on the road, if I couldn't get her in a certain amount of time, I would start to become very concerned and it would, you know, it would detract from my broadcasting because I'd be worried, you know, what's, what's with my wife. So at the end of that season, 2002, you know, I told my broadcasting partner, I was going to get more of an honest job as we put it, you know, so that I could be home and I wouldn't be traveling and be hundreds of miles away, you know, if anything more, you know, happened to my wife, as it did through those years when I was working a regular job. First off, um, I'm sorry you had to go through that with your wife. I, coming from somebody whose wife also has health issues, I, I feel that 100%. And was that very hard for you to give up? something you love to do was it was it a tough decision uh in some ways yes but but to to know that i would be there and i would be at my wife's side when she needed me that was mm -hmm. that was what made it you know easier to deal with um but the there have been there are things i miss to this day and that's the time i spent broadcasting the time behind the microphone the time I spent talking to the ball players, you know, going out eating and drinking with the ball players. I miss those. Absolutely. Things. 
I don't miss the time on the bus because we, <laughs> we never got out of the bus leagues and we took some awfully long bus rides. You know, our, our record, as far as I know, was uh, 17 hours one way. Oh, oh, my goodness. And that wow. was from Charleston, South Carolina to Lakewood, New Jersey. Oh. So as far as oh. I know, that, that's, that's our record. Now, had we gotten to AAA, we would have been flying. But that's not what happened. Right. So I don't, miss, I don't miss the buses. And, and rightfully so. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Um, if you had a chance, would you would you come out of retirement and do it again? Like right now, if you had an opportunity? Ooh. I don't know. Because as I've said, as I've said there are things that are more difficult now than they were, you know, when I got out. And I don't know if I could make the adjustment. Um, the game itself is way different. Mm-hmm. And especially the, the higher up you go, the more different it is. Um, for a little perspective, I spent as much time as I could in April and May of this year listening to my old alma mater. Um, you know, I went to Glassboro State. It's now called Rowan University. Mm-hmm. And they play with William Patterson. They play with Kane. Oh. They play with... Yep. with with uh, Jersey City, and this is all Division role. Division Three baseball for anybody who doesn't know. And the point of the matter is, Rowan made it to the Division Three World Series this year. And all the Division Three games I listened to, not just the World Series ones, all the Division Three games, the baseball, the quality of the game that was played was a lot more like the baseball I remember from the. 1970s and the 1980s you had guys stealing bases you had guys bunting you had guys you know trying to take an extra base if they could you know things that never happen at the major league level anymore you know and even even in division one college where the guys know their college prospects and they know they're trying to get drafted by a major league team they're trying to play the major league game at the college level. And so you had some pitcher for Vanderbilt striking out 15 guys in a college game. That never happened at the D3 level because they were trying to put the bat on the ball. They were not trying for home runs at the Division Three level. You know, when, when you got to Division One and throughout the minors and up to the majors, it's all about the, the launch angle and the the how, how, how fast the ball is going off the bat. You know, nobody's just trying to make contact. And so you'll have groups of pitchers striking out 18, you know, 20 odd pitch, uh, batters in a game. You won't see one guy do it because too often they take a guy out of the game after only four or five innings. You know, they don't, you know, they don't let a guy pitch a complete game. You know, there, there, there were a few no-hitters earlier in the season where they did let the one guy go the distance, and that was great, but it only, you know, it only it quit kind of in, in June. And now, like, 
Tanner Houck with Boston, every time they have him out there, they're taking him out in the fourth or fifth inning. So it's ridiculous to have guys, you know, start and go such a few innings. And then the managers wonder why their relief pitchers are overused. So this would be a much more difficult game to announce now than it would was when I left. Makes a lot of sense. I know. Yeah. The game I know is a lot different. Um, and honestly, some good ways and some bad ways from 18 years ago, 19 years ago. So I totally understand that. And not that I didn't think about it, you know, in 20, in 2017, I thought I was going to get a chance to get with the, the girl of my dreams there. I had, I'd been with this girl back in the 1990s, the early nineties. And then she had married someone else and I married someone else. And my marriage ended in 2015. And in 2017, I thought I was going to have another shot with my girl from the 1990s. And Mm -hmm. she, she was in Daytona beach, Florida. And so what I did, I called up the team in Daytona beach and I said, you know, um, it looks like I may be able to come down here and live with this girl, you know, and, and grow old with her and stay down here forever. And I said, if you want, I, I'll be a volunteer color commentary, home games only. And that didn't happen. I, I, I would have I done that. And, and the, first of all, the guy, the, the team was not um, interested. And then the girl suddenly decided she wasn't interested either. So the whole thing fell apart. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, oh, boy. Yeah, I'm sorry that didn't work out. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I would have, you know, I would have tried to make the effort if, you know, under those conditions, you know, home games only, I wouldn't have to ride the buses. So I would have, I would have tried to see what I could do with the, the new game. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I'm also interested, would you work in baseball in the other capacity? Have you considered trying other things besides commentating or do you just want to chill back and just listen well, to the games now? That's, that's the one thing I could do. So now I, listen, I'm still a Yankees fan. And when they're not on or when, when they're going badly, you know, and I find out there's a, especially interesting game, either at the minor league or major league level, I'll tune into that if you hear something different. So I'm definitely as much of a fan as I ever was. No matter how difficult that can be, I'm still the fan. You know, the thing that would cause me the most problems in staying a fan is if they can't get major league players and management together during 2022, if they have yet another strike, I mean, they were lucky to to not lose more people permanently after the 94, 95 strike. They they could have, you know, if they if they try that again, if they if we lose a, a year or even a good bite of a year, if we lose another postseason, I don't know, you know, how many fans are going to come back to the game that, you know, that they're seeing now if the players still can't be content, if you can't make it on 35 million a year, uh, something's wrong with you. 
Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's a sticky situation, you know. To your point, last year we were scared of not getting a season because they couldn't agree with the pandemic rules. Right. They almost didn't get one last year. They had to force one. But me and Bobby are definitely a touch worried about that. We think the core has to prevail to end up playing, but we're going to have to see it. We've got a long way to go these next few months. Because, you know, it isn't even the, the stars that are the, the incredibly high-priced ones The the mediocrities who get 10 million a year or 8 million a year and they hit 220. It's, it's insane. And I don't know how long this can continue, you know, with, with the, this kind of a pay scale for people who aren't any good guys who can't pitch. You've got so many bullpens are just terrible. You know, there are some good starters and then, then they only go a few innings and then you, Turn it over to the bullpen. I mean, you 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 know why Degrom has had so few victories the last couple of years for the Mets because the bullpen can't hold the game for him. And they can't hit one too. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to see someone win 300 games again, probably. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. It's um, it's crazy how a lot of things have changed. It, well, the one thing in alluding to to uh, pitchers is back in the day, I feel like there was no like limit on how many pitches they could throw. Now there is. So mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that uh, changed in the game that takes away a lot. And then if your pitchers can't go, like for instance, the Yankees pitching, other than Garrett Cole, can't go more than four or five innings, then the bullpen gets worn out. Yeah. Right. And now Nolan Ryan, you know, he pitched, you know, hundreds of innings and he pitched it for more than 25 years you know from 1966 was when he broke in with the Mets and gave it up and at the end of 1993 you don't know why today's pitchers you know can't last for that many years the way Ryan could the way Bob Gibson did Steve Carlton Ferguson Jenkins you know, I can't imagine any of today's pitchers, you know, lasting and and even even winning 200 games in a career is going to be a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. The way things have gotten, yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. Um, now, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you um, in terms of. This year, what I'm going to ask you a Yankees-related question about this season. And um, we all know that the Yankees are literally on the cusp of making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. So it's really a do-or-die situation these last few games, especially with the Yankees traveling up to Boston this weekend. So my question to you is, do you feel that this Yankees team, if they make the playoffs, has what it takes to make the World Series? No, no, I don't. Because they all year long have been playing to the level of their opposition. When they play the Orioles, they play just barely enough to beat the Orioles. And that's a team that the Yankees should just slaughter. But that's that's not what happens. They just barely beat them. The last time they played the Twins, they were down 5-1. to one in the eighth inning and they, they came back and won. Yes, but you know, it shouldn't have been that close. 
you know, with the with the teams that they should beat, they just barely do, and then they don't they don't beat the teams which are ahead of them, Tampa Bay, Boston. You know, they haven't done well against Boston all this year. Yeah, it's it's a problem. I feel like the Yankees this year, the, the continuing theme is the word inconsistent. I think that's what uh, simmer, summarizes the Yankees 2021 season to a T. Now I'll ask you a question about the Mets since you were a Mets fan. So what you're seeing now, what do you think, in your opinion, do you think the Mets organization – Next year, because we know this year they're not going to make it. Next year, have what it takes to make it. I know it's really early, but. Well, this is going to be Steve Cohen's second year of trying to put the pieces in place. You know, you've got to get rid of both of our teams need to lose their present managers because neither Aaron Boone nor Luis Rujas is any good manager. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. I don't know who they're going to get to replace them, you know, because anybody knows they're going to be in a difficult spot managing in New York. But the the Mets, they need to get more more of the pieces in place. You know, they're they're not as close as the Yankees are, because the Yankees have. Um, he pitched a couple of nights ago. One of the Latins, Luis Severino. They have they have him coming back. They have Cole, obviously. Montgomery's been getting better all year long. You know, right. he was coming off of injury. And the, the Yankees, I think, are closer than, than the Mets are. But the uh, Yankees have some issues, too. They've got to... Get a different catcher. You know, Gary Sanchez. Yes. I think we've 100%. all had, had enough of Gary Sanchez. <laughs> now, what to do with Glaber Torres? I'm not sure. I don't know if he can play either second or shortstop. And I'm, I'm not sure what happened to his hitting. Now, the the Mets, they've got a lot of problems there, too. Syndergaard, I can't even remember the last time he pitched. You know, yeah, I don't it feels think, like forever. I don't think he's thrown a pitch in anger this year, 2021. Yeah, he's rehabbing still, and but the season's he, over. He, he he ruined his shoulder. I forget if it was in 17 or in 18. And that was after he refused to take a MRI test, which the team wanted him to take. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. At, at which the team would have paid for. You know, I mean, if they made him pay the bill, I can understand him saying no. But that wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't ask him to pay the bill. This guy was just, you know, pig headed, stubborn, and he didn't get the test done and he ruined his shoulder. And and I don't know if he's pitched much since then, since whenever that was. So they've got a lot of problems there. Mike Conforto had an awful year this year, and there's talk about bringing him back. And if they do, they would have to offer him twenty million. And after what he put up this year, is that worth $20 million? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's... Uh, Mar Marcus Stroman is another, you know, he he's looking looking at the trying to get more money, and he just got hammered up in 
Boston a couple of nights ago. Got our expense. <laughs> so. I, I will agree with you. I think the Yankees do need a change of scenery in terms of the manager situation. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. Julian and I say this all the time. We have mixed emotions about Aaron Boone, but I, I'm not, I haven't been sold on him since the day he got the job. And neither was um, I. Don, I'll tell you this, in my opinion, I think he only got that job because he hit that walk-off home run to send the Yankees to the World Series. That's the only reason why he got it, in my opinion. Which is a strange reason to give him that job because just because he did that doesn't mean he could manage, doesn't mean that he can manage. And the real bottom line is that the existing Steinbrenner is very definitely not the man that his father was. Absolutely not. George was an incredible owner. You know, if, if he hired Boone at all, if he did, George, George wouldn't have kept him for as long as he has. Absolutely not. So he's had entirely too many chances. Yeah, this is going to be year five, no, year four now after Girardi. And they haven't gotten past the point where Girardi gets fired, too, because you go down in game seven, the ALCS, and the furthest you've gotten to is game six of the ALCS. Right. We've been spinning was, a wheel for four years. Yeah, that was the, in, the end of 17 was when Girardi lost that job and went over to Philadelphia. One major mistake the Yankees made was – letting Didi Gregorius get off and go to Philly. Agreed. They definitely should have hung on to him. So. Yeah. I agree 100% with that. I think every Yankee fan, including Julian, will agree that uh, Didi being let go was a huge mistake. Had a lot of big moments for us. Um, and it had to, and that's what put Torres a shortstop full-time. So, in hindsight, probably not the best decision. Absolutely not. I do have one interesting question for Don, and then I know we'll probably get going soon. Maybe we'll do one more each or something. But um, what's your take on the players and steroids in the Hall of Fame? Like, do you think Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, like those type of people, I even throw Pete Rose into the mix as well. Do you think they should be Hall of Famers, or do you think they should be kept out? Absolutely never. No way in the world should they be Hall of Famers. However, having, having said that, I think they're going to be. Oh, you think that ends up getting there, all of them, even Pete? Uh, I hope not. I really hope not. Because really? what, what he did was even worse. What Pete Rose did was even worse than taking steroids. He gambled, you know, on the game. That cuts at the very fabric of the, t- of the game itself. You know, that's why Shoeless Joe is never getting in. And any of the other low lives on that team that were – eight of them, you know, and, and Pete, Pete Rose is every bit as bad as them, as bad as Hal Chase, all the gamblers who got tossed by Judge Landis, you know, Pete's every bit as bad as they are. The, the druggies, I don't like the fact that I think they'll get in. You know, I don't think they should. I think the drugging is almost as bad, but I think they will, it might take another 10 years but I'll see. I think we'll live to see Clemens and Bonds and A-Rod, you know, in the Hall of Fame. It'll just take longer. I, I hope I don't see Pete Rose put in. I really don't want that to happen. Yeah. You know, in terms of Pete Rose, I think we could all agree that 
the guy is the greatest hitter in baseball. No, no one's ever going to break that record of his. And I think, what was it, for, like 4,300 hits? I think uh, it's something like in that. 42, 56. And, 40, you, you know, I'm not denying that, but the gambling is that much worse. You just, you know, you, you just have to forget about what he did as a player. Once he, once he left the game, once he became manager and he's laying money down, you know, if you get into gambling and you get into, you know, with the, those are, those are bad people, the gambling people, you know, he could have gotten his legs broken. He could have gotten his arms broken. You know, they do not care who you are. They don't care what you did. If you lay down a bet and you lose and you can't pay, you know, these things happen. So he could have been approached. He, he could have been put in a position. You know, you, you make certain things happen on the field that will break both your arms and both your legs. So that's what anybody is letting themselves in for if they get in with the gamblers. And that's why gambling has always been such a no-no around the baseball teams. Right. I, I just think, yeah, I understand what he did, but, uh, you know, it, I get that in terms of that, uh, for me, Don, I, I think personally, yes, what he did like was inexcusable, unforgivable, but I think the one thing that, he was the greatest hitter to ever live. Things that he did were amazing. The big red machine, he consistent hitter. Um, you know, the guys who took steroids and everything like that, they got in disadvantage. They, they injected themselves with performance-enhancing drugs to enhance their play and gave their team a better chance to win. I feel like what... I feel like in a way that's different. I understand that, you know, going up with gamblers. Yeah, that's terrible. That's really bad. I get it. I get that. You know, when you deal with guys like that, they could do bad things to you if you don't do what they want you to do. But in terms of, I truly think that the guys who took steroids, like some of them, like in my opinion, like I'll say this, I think that Barry Bonds, I know it's a big topic of, Discussion, I think he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I get it that he's the all-time home run hitter. But if you look at him, what he's been, how he started, the guy was a 30-30 guy, 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases. And then out of nowhere, he blows up like a Macy's Day balloon. Correct. And he's starting <laughs> to hit the, all these home runs. Yeah. And, you know, it's – to me, I there's no way, no how that that guy did not take steroids. He just blew up. The guy was a stick figure. He still hit home runs. Correct me if I'm wrong, Julian, too. Didn't, it, didn't it, he hit home runs even when he was skinny? Yeah, of course. Am I, I right? mean, he had a 40-42. Um, he was – he was his game completely changed. He grew, like, multiple size. You can make an argument he was a Hall of Famer, potentially on the path before he did the same thing with Roger. But I get the fact that they both cheated, obviously, although Bonds is a lot more obvious than Clemens, but we assume course, Clemens yeah. took steroids also. But, um, yeah, just everyone has their preference on this. My take is that um, there's also guys in the Hall of Fame that are in there that we don't know that did steroids. Um, there's definitely some Very controversial true. people that made it through. Very true. You know, who, you know whose name hasn't been mentioned, but I know he was a nothing 
he, he, he was absolutely going nowhere before the steroids came along. And his name is Sammy Sosa. Oh, yeah. He, he came up. I was at his major league debut at Yankee Stadium. He was playing for Texas and he was this little, you know, you talk about stick figure. This guy was a second baseman or shortstop. He was a banjo hitter those first few years in the game. You know, he was starting to hit home runs in, I think, 97. And even then, you know, that was before the the big chase with him and McGuire. But he, he, those first early years with, with Texas and then with the White Sox, before he went over to the Cubs, I mean, there was nothing happening for Sammy Sosa. And then suddenly he, he becomes, you know, this amazing home run hitter. Yeah. So I, he's, think most, he, yeah. He's, I, I think we're going to see these guys get in, whether they should or not. I think it's going to happen. I mean, Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame for heaven's sake. Yeah, so give him, another, give him another 10 years. There probably will be there. I think McGuire is in the same boat as Sosa almost. I think he, he needs steroids too. Like you talk about a few other guys. Rafael Palmero gets his 3,500, not getting touched to the Hall of Fame. But I guess, like, if you let someone in, they could open the floodgates for all of them. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It's going to be a while, like you said. I don't. I think we all agree that Boston Clemens are probably not getting in in the last time when they try next year. I don't think it's going to happen. I, yeah, then, I could agree with you on that. Then they, they might have to wait around for the Veterans Committee. That would be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But you, you, you did you brought me back to something I had forgotten about that they don't get fifteen years anymore. They 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 only get ten. I'd okay. forgotten I'd forgotten that. So then then it really could get to be the the Veterans Committee unless somebody decides, okay, well, on their tenth and last opportunity, maybe. I, yeah. I and then like you say, like like it was when free agency happened. First, there was one guy, then there were a couple of guys, and then there were a whole bunch of them. And it'll be like that with with this. The one, when one goes in, then they'll all fall in rapidly after that. Yeah, yeah that's true. I could see that happening. Yeah, we got a long way to go. It's going to be something to watch what happens. But I'm wondering that, too. Like, if people are like, oh, I'm just going to be spiteful and wait for the last year. Because the vote trajections um, show there's no way they're going to get it based on movement over the last two years. Because the movement's been very small. Unless everyone's just like, like you said, they just want to harvest it and make them suffer. But I don't think I don't think there's going to be enough people that feel that way, though. I don't know how long this stretch will be between that 10th and last year and the first chance to be eligible thanks to the Veterans Committee. I don't know how that works anymore. Yeah, it's it's something. It really is. And you know what? One of my last questions for you, Don, is what's your opinion on the one voter who did not vote for Derek Jeter? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But there's there's always going to be one, you know. But Jeter was an amazing player. He he was only in Double A for maybe a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, and his his time in Double A coincided with our time in the major leagues when we got our cup of coffee. 
we almost missed him entirely. I got to do one game that that Cheater was a part of, and then he was called up to AAA. But all the years he was with the Yankees, he was amazing, especially in the clutch. And I don't know, you know, why some people call him overrated. I'm, I'm never going to call him that. That's the new school looking at the defensive metrics saying he didn't save this many runs or whatever, but like the old school guys and like we appreciate him too. Like I don't look at that too much. He's not overrated at all. And the Hall of Fame weekend was great. Um, got to, I was lucky enough to go up there. Um, great time. And um, we didn't hear too much of that talk, thankfully, because that really irritated me. You know, what did bother me was that it was a Wednesday that he was put yeah. in the Hall of Fame. I'd rather they wait till next year because they could have turned Cooperstown into Woodstock for Jeter on a Sunday, on a weekend. You know, they've already had, you know, the real Woodstock in 1969, but Cooperstown, <laughs> Cooperstown could have been the next Woodstock. So, yeah, but and they didn't let that happen. They they had it on on a on a Wednesday, you know, and they presumably did that to limit the risk of COVID. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how 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 much difference that would have made. You know, they still there were there were people there. It wasn't like there was five hundred yeah. people there. There were a few thousand. I don't know how many. I think they said fifteen to twenty. It was a nice crowd, but it could have been bigger. To your point, like there was a lot of more space in the back. They said, um, I think Barry Bloom had said he had seen bigger inductions for like Tony Gwynn, like Cal Ripken Jr. So that's something to note. Yeah, and Jeter deserved more than Ripken easily. Should have should have had a lot more than Ripken. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, at the Hall of Fame, I unfortunately wasn't there, but watching it, it literally, that was Derek Jeter's show. Everybody went there for Derek Jeter. And I agree. If they would have did it on a Sunday, for it to be, it would have been a huge celebration for Derek Jeter. (laughs) Should have just did a parade for his honor, honestly. That's a COVID issue too because they canceled the Hall of Fame parade. They had they normally do have that, but I think they're gonna push that till May. But it's such a fiasco with COVID that caused all the delays. They delayed it twice. I think they just wanted to get it off. Honestly, I, th- I think they couldn't bear the delay anymore. But to your points, a weekend would have been much better. Maybe they could have did it around the All Star game, like before that or something. Or I don't know. But like it was the timing was weird for sure. But. It was a, still a fun experience, but it wasn't everything it should have been. And now, next year, it's going to be David Ortiz's turn, and and I, I just think that's a that's a terrible look that he'll have more people at Cooperstown when he gets in than Jeter had. That's yeah. terribly unfair. I hope he's not first ballot, but he might probably will be. Well, he will be. Trust me, the Red Sox Nation people will see that he's first ballot. Of course. Of course, and rightfully so. Of rightfully so. I <clears throat> Derek Jeter definitely. I wish he. You know, I still think it was a huge crowd for him. Yeah, but next year you'll see Red Sox Nation definitely uh make it a huge party for De- David Ortiz. Who you, you know, want to talk about? You want to talk about being clutch? He was clutch as well. And you know, the thing is, he was terrible the first six years of his career. He was with the Minnesota Twins and I was with the I was with the St. Saint Paul Saints. 
and the twins would have Ortiz on the team and they would be talking about what a great prospect David Ortiz was. He was absolutely nothing until he went away to Boston. I don't know what in the world, you know, got into him in Boston that he, that he could do it where he couldn't do it in Minnesota. And they still played in the Metrodome then. You know, you'd think if it was a hitter's ballpark that he could have, you know, made things happen in Minnesota. He absolutely didn't. I was astonished when he became the player that he did in Boston. I think it was the New England clam chowder that got him going. Yeah. <laughs> if, if we wanted – honestly, I think, you know, I think that um, Park and Fenway is that right – for left-handed hitters, it's the short porch and right. It's so easy to hit. It's shorter than Yankee Stadium, that short porch and right field. Yeah, it really is, brother. Um, Ortiz had his controversies as well. Um, so I want to thank Shelly for putting this together, part of our team. She reached out to you, and that was very nice of her. And trying to think, do you have any final questions, brother? Uh, I got all of them in. All I just want to say to end it is, Don, I really appreciate – we really appreciate you coming on here, telling us your story. And as I said right when we got started, what you what you did was – inspirational and incredible that you know you're somebody in a profession where seeing things is the job your job is to see everything and you unfortunately were not able to do that but you gave everybody listening to you a vision of what was going on without you being able to see it It was just really inspirational and i thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about it Hey, it was, it's, it's been real. I agree 100%. Bobby put it perfectly. I couldn't agree more. It was such an inspiration. And then we know we can do anything we try to do. I mean, it was almost impossible. We still got it done. So there's no excuse for us or anyone else listening. We just got to go, go out and do it. Absolutely. That's, that's just that's the job. That's the job. So Thanks a lot, guys. It's Thank been, you yep, so much. Absolutely. Bye now. Have a good one. Yeah.